I recently witnessed or took part in conversations that reminded me how important it is not to categorize people, but instead treat us all as individuals. We'll talk about that. But first, a church in Nashville has gone straight apostate on this week's Corey Truax Show. Apostasy is a strong word. I try not to call anyone a heretic, a heretic or an apostate unless there is real reason and verifiably so. To do that, we're going to start there on the show, but we also get to talk uh, that about that thing I mentioned at the top where it's becoming more and more clear that the cultural milieu, the philosophy of the day, is that no one is just a person anymore. Everyone is a category, and their category is the most important thing about them. So I there's consequences to that, and I want to get to it. There was a clip from a Tim Keller sermon I want to play for you. I don't want to talk about Rush Limbaugh any, but I do want to talk about the reaction to his death. So not about Rush, but about the reaction to it. And then I, I have a quick word near the end about this some climate change discussion about what's happened in Texas in that snowstorm. I will admit this. Being in a news cycle where the primary things are a fake controversy about Ted Cruz in a big storm, there is something about that that's charming, normal, and brings the heart rate down some. So I don't know. Uh, I have some thoughts on that near the end of the show, but we'll get started with that first thing about this church in Nashville in just a moment. First, my name is Corey Truax. I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 10.30 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You are invited. I should mention, as we are now in the season of Lent, our eyes are focused towards Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I will be restarting the series I was in called uh, in the Gospel of Mark. That's in a couple weeks. We will start on March the 14th, and then the next four weeks we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, and I'll have a, a finale of that part of the mini-series there on Easter Sunday. So if you're not part of a church home, Easter is that time of year where folks tend to think about maybe getting back into church, that or Christmas, and so you are invited. We would certainly love to have you. Let's start here. There is a organization in Nashville. They call themselves a church. They need to take that name off of their sign, their website, because they're not a church. They don't affirm the Christian faith, and therefore they are not a church. They call themselves Grace Point. And recently, their pastor preached a sermon whose theme, or its theme, its claim, is the Bible is not the Word of God. This is fundamental Christian teaching. This is not an up-for-debate thing when it comes to in or outside of the faith. There are things that we as brothers and sisters debate on. I think the classic illustration is, or at least for American Christian, is there are issues in Christianity that are national borders, and there are some that are state borders. So as I sit here in South Carolina, in less than two hours, I can be in North Carolina. In less than two hours, I can be in Georgia. I Well, less than two hours, I can be in Tennessee. And no one's going to check for my passport at the border. I can just move freely. It's state borders. It's quite easy to go across. And in Christianity, we have issues that are state borders. It's communion. Whether or not you offer it to everybody or if they need to be a member of the church. Baptism. Do we sprinkle babies or do we wait for a believer's baptism when there's a profession of faith? I would include in this one women in ministry. I'm a full blown complementarian believe there's really distinct roles for men and women but there are people in the faith who aren't the gifts of the spirit the role of the holy spirit in either worship settings or in our own lives there's 
We're all in the same family. We, have, we think differently, but we're all in the family together. I would include even in the family is whether or not church is or worship styles are normative or uh, the other word I can't think of right now is uh, simply pres- something like prescriptive where we only do in church what the Bible says to do in church, whereas the other view is we can do whatever we want as long as there's not a clear prohibition. All these things are inside the family. They're state borders. But then there are national borders. When you cross the line, you've crossed out of the faith. You're not in it anymore. If you deny the very literal uh, enfleshment, let's go with that, of God in of Jesus, of God in the flesh, that if you thought Jesus was the first of the first thing God created, or he was a manifestation of God, but not God himself, we're, we're, you're outside of the faith. If we are works salvation, you work your way to salvation. It's not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We're outside of the faith. Equally, this, by the way, when I just said that, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, those are four of the five solas of the Reformation. And the last one is sola scriptura, by scripture alone. All authority for faith and practice is by the scriptures. And so when a church in Nashville comes along, or a so-called church comes along, and says it's not the word of God, well, they're outside of the faith, and they should be treated as such. If they were part of any organization or denomination, that denomination should be taking action against them to remove them from it. I want to read to you from the Christian Post version of the story, and I'll respond to it as we go. This is a quote from their I'm, I'm using scare quotes here because he's not really a pastor, but the guy who runs the place, guy who talks the most, here's what he said. As progressive Christians, oh, great, progressive Christians, we're open to the tensions and inconsistencies in the Bible. We know that it can't live up to impossible modern standards. We strive to more clearly articulate what Scripture is and isn't. Okay. It's a lot of gobbledygook there. It doesn't mean anything. There's certainly tensions in the Bible, concepts that pull on each other and push on each other. Rightly understood, there are no inconsistencies. And he talks about it can't live up to impossible modern standards. I love this chronological snobbery. It can't live up to our enlightened standards today. This is one of those weird parts of progressivism. There's a bunch of people in the United States that think the only good people who have ever lived on the planet live right now and they live in the United States of America. Or they live in the West. The people who have these ideas at this moment, this is, these are the only decent people who have ever lived. And so how could it be possibly hold the Bible up to our standards? Because we know our standards in this moment are the greatest standards that have ever been. It's a snobbery and an arrogance that is astounding. And for arrogance to astound me, it's pretty arrogant. But here we go again from this wannabe pastor. He says, The Bible isn't the Word of God, isn't self-interpreting, isn't a science book, it isn't an answer book or a rule book, it isn't inerrant or infallible. Rather, it is a product of community, a library of texts, multivocal a human response to God and living in dynamic. Okay, let me go through those categories. He says the Bible isn't the word of God. 
Well, except for the Bible saying the exact opposite of itself. We Sure. But we have that, I think it's 1 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God, is God-breathed, is inspired by God, and it's profitable. I'm doing this from memory. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. So it's uh, for doctrine, for teaching, what we believe, for reproof, for correction, and then for instruction in how to live, instruction in righteousness. That's what the Bible says about itself. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God, despite them saying it's not the word of God. Further, we have some pretty good logic to know what scripture is. We have really good we have good history on how the Old Testament was canonized. You can actually find out in the Bible, I think that's in Chronicles, first or second Chronicles. You can find out how what which of the prophets and which of their writings were canonized as as the word of God. I would add that all those prophets that we canonized said this a lot. Thus says the Lord, or if you want to KJV it, thus saith the Lord. And so you have the the Lord, Yahweh, comes to Jeremiah, comes to Isaiah, comes to Obadiah, comes to Amos or Joel, and says, declare to the people my word. And so it's Yahweh saying to a man, this is my word, you go declare it to your people, it is therefore literally the word of God. And that First Timothy passage, that it is, that all scripture is the word of God. We also have that being certified by the miracles that God allowed men to do to certify this was his work and his time. The gospels are literally Jesus's words. And if you affirm, well, a lot of it is Jesus's words. It's the story of Jesus. And if you affirm Jesus is God in the flesh, that is very literally the word of God, that no man comes to the father, but by me, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is God speaking those words. That further on to question, well, what is the scripture? What are the scriptures that are breathed out by God and are the word of God? Well, then God, excuse me, Jesus certifies the apostles, the disciples. And so when you're going to read 1 Peter or James, or you're going to read a New Te- other New Testament books, for that matter, Acts, Luke wasn't an apostle, but he traveled with the apostles and is recording the history. Jesus has affirmed these people. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3 or 2, Peter says, you've read the, you know, what Paul's, Paul has sent you and the rest of the scriptures, putting Paul's writings in the category of scripture. So he who was certified by Jesus in his ministry certifies Paul's letters of scripture. Sir, whoever you are at this, church, at this wannabe church in, in Nashville, yes, the Bible says of itself that the scriptures are the word of God. And then we have really clear, very easy to understand line of secession or line of custody on why these things qualify as scripture. But he continues, the Bible isn't self-interpreting. It's, it is self-interpreting in that you, you really can't understand the New Testament in totality without knowing a lot of Old Testament references. I think I saw a stat once that close to, close to a quarter of the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament. And if it's not self-interpreting, I would argue and ask, well, then who interprets it? Do all of us do it for ourselves? Or is the Bible the objective standard that stands outside of all of us and we all see if we measure up to the word, not if the word measures up to what we want it to be? He says the Bible is not a science book. That's correct. That it's not an answer or rule book. That's true. It's not an answer book or a rule book. It has answers in it. There are some rules in it in some of the genre. But no, it's not an answer book or rule book. And then he says it's not inerrant or infallible. But because it is the word of God, 
it is both inerrant and infallible. That the times change, the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And it still has. Long after this pastor is dead and gone and no one ever remembers him, you know it will still be going the scriptures. They will still be inerrant or infallible because they are the only word of God. And then he says that the Bible is a product of community. I have no idea. I have genuinely have no idea what that means. There, no, no explanation. It's a product of community. It is God communicating man, communicating to man what to write. He calls it a library of texts. That's true. He calls it multivocal. If that means there's a bunch of people talking and there's stories and dialogue, okay, sure. Then he calls it a human response to God. Absolutely not except maybe in the Psalms in some ways, in some of the songs, people are responding to the goodness of God in song. But even those, this is God being good to give us the response to him. Then he calls it living and dynamic, and I would agree with that. The big important point here is this. When you hear this type of language, reject it outright. If the Bible isn't the word of God, we have some serious, serious problems because we have nowhere else to get truth. One of the conversations I had recently came to that type of impasse. If the declaration is, well, that's just your perspective, and that's just my perspective. All right, well, what we're going to need is a referee. And for the Christian, the only referee can then be the Scriptures. And even for those outside the faith, the Bible declares some objective reality. Ultimately, truth is not subjective. It is objective, and we find everything we need for life and godliness in the Scriptures. So can I challenge you? Are you in them? Are you reading them? Are you listening to sermons? We have all that we need on that app on your phone, in the pages of that dusty book in your home. We can get mad at a church in Nashville, and I am. That's because I'm zealous for the good work that the scriptures do in us when we go to them for their formation. When we come back, I had another recent conversation around critical race theory and the idea of putting people in categories versus treating them as individuals. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truex Show on WHRT, his radio talk, 89.7, and wherever you find podcasts, I am honored when you listen. You can also find me on every, well, uh, that's that's too far. I was going to say on all the social media stuff, but you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Those are the three. I don't snap or the chatting or the ticking or the talking or the other things that kids do. Don't do those. But uh, the Facebook, Twitter, the Instagram, you can find me there. Look for me, Corey Truax, and it'll be fun to have you along. Here's the story that set this off for me. Folks on my political side wanted to make some hay of a, a clip of President Joe Biden. I, I was not wanting to make any political hay off of it because I just think it's stupid and no fun, it's immature. And also, I've, I have some patience in that he's just an an older man who barely knows what he's talking about most of the time. And I mean that with some sympathy. But he was on a CNN town hall, and he said that getting on the internet to get lined up for a vaccine is something that many blacks and Hispanics, I think he specifically, I think 
uh, specified those two ethnic groups, they'd have trouble with it. Have trouble getting on the internet to get set up. And this was supposed to be, here's this racist thing. See Joe Biden sounding racist? And that then comes on the heels of Jen Psaki, the press secretary. She had a video go semi-viral. It's very viral on the right that someone writes into this video Q&A she's doing. I think it was a tweet that said, what is Joe Biden doing to help my small business? And her response was, well, first he's nominated a woman for small business administration. And that's, you know, got clipped up and made fun of that. Okay. So a human with ovaries, I guess, presumably is going to run it. That how's that help my small business? I don't understand. And I, listen, I, I understand these things are bad, but I can't get riled up on the political um, ramifications of that. I just don't care enough. I think it's stupid. But there is something deeper there. And I had an- another discussion here recently. I've, I've had some talks where I can tell there is now a cultural feature that we none of us decided on in a formal way it's just been such a part of our schooling, our TV, radio, podcast consumption. It's become so much a part of our human resources offices and discussions when we work for businesses that it has largely been internalized to our minds and our vocabulary and our thinking. And that's something especially for the Christian to consider in this world that whether you meant to or not, the world is so thick, it's so influential. It's around you so much. You consume its radio, its TV, its thinking, its commercials, its businesses. You consume so much of it that you might not even know that you have been discipled. I use that word on purpose. You have been discipled by another religion. And the way that I am seeing that, the the new feature of the culture that seems to be totally installed is group think or category think is what I want to call it. I'd like to call it category think. That none of us see each other anymore. You don't see me. I'm not Corey. I'm not Corey Truax with my own story. My own experiences. I am a white Christian man. And that's what chiefly matters about me. Or my categories. Not to mention that there seems to be some surmising of truth from those categories. True and false. That the that truth is going to be dependent on your category. So this is damaging in that we don't recognize that truth is outside of us all. That no matter your category that you fit into, the truth is the same for all of us. We just have the mission of going to find the objective truth. But we, as a culture, have accepted that truth will be different based on your category, and no one is an individual. Everybody is their category. It's their ethnic category, their income category, their sexuality category. And so I can have a conversation where someone, in, in the last couple of years, I had, a, had conversations where someone would regularly say, one thing I know is that no white man can fix this. No old white guy can fix this thing that we're talking about. And I hear that and immediately think, wow, what a myopic, dumb worldview. There... In one way, listen to how I'm saying this. In one way, of course, there are old white guys. In another way, 
There's no such thing. There's like Dan and Mike and Fred. I'm making up names. But they're not, they are their own person. Each of them is an individual with their own experiences, intellect. Like they're, they're not just a category. When we talk about categories, it's, it's so poisonous. The African-American community, the Latino community, the LGBT community. Are any of these people, do any of them have names? Do we care to learn about any of them? Or are they just their category? It's so poisonous. And it has become so natural. I mean, I had that discussion where someone says, I'm sure just no, no, white, no old white guy can fix this, which, by the way, is some bonkers racist things to say, too. It is a bonkers racist thing to say. For that matter, it's sexist, too. It's, but that's, that's actually what we, I thought we were fighting against was categorism. When you are sexist, that means you have a bias against one of the sexes. But it's, to, it's totally a normal thing to just say no, no man can do it. But there's it should it should not be a, a way in there should not be a, a thing in which we measure men. Let's measure a man. Let's pick one. Measure that man. Let's not measure women. Let's measure that woman right there. Because I, I said I get I I I have a point I'm coming to at the end of this, but I'm going to give you a preview for for it. It is now I I am resolved to always call this out. When anybody uses a category in a discussion of any heft or gravity, I want to call it out. Hold on. Do you have a name? Are we talking about somebody? Is there anybody individual? And for that matter, the, I can't wait for the next time in discussion someone calls me a white Christian male. Because I will stop it. Like, nope, I'm not. I'm not. I don't live in that world. That's a secular and biblical worldview that you're imposing upon me, and I don't accept it. I don't accept your religion. My name's Corey. Here's the things I believe. Here's the places I've been. This is my family. I, I refuse. I absolutely categorically refuse any category you put me into. And if you're going to be, I'm going to call it dumb enough, myopic enough, small-minded enough to live in a category world, we probably don't want to have much discussion anyway because we're on a different intellectual playing field. Now I say it's poisonous. It's also unbiblical and that's much more important. There's a worldview floating around right now in the American culture that is begging you to put people into categories. And the Bible would say, don't do that. God will deal with nations. He'll deal with groups at times. But the story of the Bible is not just God chasing down humankind in totality, pursuing to reconcile his creatures to himself, but to reconcile the created one, and each one to himself. This is one of the good parts of the Great Awakening, that we recognize that God pursues you, son, daughter. doesn't just pursue the church broadly. We, don't, we, don't, we only really have two core categories biblically. The redeemed and the unredeemed. The elect and the unelect the believer and the non-believer. All the other categories, we, we're actually have, having a story of Scripture of fighting against them. The, the nature of humanity at the time the Bible is written throughout those 
centuries is a great deal of ethnic division. That's normal throughout human history. People stay with their people. And then Yahweh goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and by you I'm going to bless all the nations. That the earliest vision was that the nations would come together under the authority of the one God. Going towards the end of all things, we read Revelation. That's the picture we get. It's all ethne, all ethnos, all ethnicities coming together. It's unity between those parts, not staying separate and keeping them as the categories because the ultimate category was all of the redeemed of those different ethnicities come together. All of the unredeemed of various ethnicities are in another category. But the thing that brings them all together in every ethnicity, tribe, and tongue is who was redeemed and unredeemed. This is the biblical category. And as the world demands of us to think outside in other categories, to have everyone in their sexuality group, in their ethnic group, in their income group, it's time for us to say, no, I refuse. That's a person. I want to get to know that person. Whatever happened to the idea after the Enlightenment of individualism? Now it seems people are not just comfortable, but they strive to be categorized. They want the category, their safety, or some kind of community in the category. I think it's so poison. I've called it poisonous a few times for a reason. I think about the categories here in the United States that get told, you can't achieve. This system is so rigged against you, you have no hope. You have no potential. You better look to me to rescue you. Can I give you a different message? Anybody that is trying to get you, is trying to convince you that you need them, that person doesn't care about you. That person has no interest for your good. They're looking to make you a ward of themselves, to use you to make themselves feel good about themselves. Here's the message of empowerment. We live in, an, in a world that is not perfectly just. There is not equitable opportunity across the board. But if you live in the Western world, and particular, particularly the United States of America, you can make something of yourself and you don't need anybody to do it. Go after it. Be ambitious. Work hard. Achieve. Because you are you. Not because you fit into any categories, because you are yourself. So this category thinking that has infected the American mind, it's poisonous, it's unbiblical, I think it's dehumanizing, turns people into not people, they're only their demographic categories. And here's my final call to you. We need to reject it. I'm talking, I am asking you, consider it when it comes up at work, when it comes up through an HR meeting and you're talking about it with people afterwards. When your young person comes home from school or college and tries to introduce it, I, I think it's, it's good for us all. You are doing good things for humanity that when someone says, well, no, old white guy, or especially, this, the easy ones are, if someone puts in a category of minority, someone will step up and say, nope, can't do that. But anytime you hear it, Anytime you hear category, stop. Challenge it. I want to hear about people. I love people. I love humans. They're made in the image of God. Categories aren't. People are.
and I want to do what we can to support people. So there you go. I've heard that in a couple of different discussions, and I think it's one we got to start responding to and responding to it. I think pretty aggressively is the word I would say, that we are not going to be a people of category. We're going to get to know every individual person for who they are, their own merits, their own story, and love people well in that way. Next up, another way you can love people well. See what I did there? It was just a totally contrived segue. Uh, one way you can love people is by sharing really good sermon content with them. It's because I love you. You, the listener of the Corey Truax Show, I'm going to share with you now a clip from a sermon I heard recently that I thought was quite powerful. It was from Tim Keller. I just I love me some Tim Keller. Some of these old dudes, they're just so much wiser, smarter than I am. And I, their communication skills far outstrip mine. And you should just hear from them more than you hear from me. He was preaching through the story of Nicodemus. Uh, that's in John 3, I think. And the idea of being born again, true transformation happening. And he told the story from a girl, a woman he knew, in his church in Virginia before he left like 40 years ago to start that church in Manhattan, in New York City. I just find it to be a really powerful illustration, and I want to share it with you. We'll start and stop as we go. Again, he is giving an illustration about true transformation and truly being born again. This is Pastor Tim Keller. You're not just an improved older person. You become a whole new person. I don't think anybody ever put this any better than a story. When I was a young minister, I talked to a woman who was trying to give me her testimony, and I was a young minister, and she was telling me how Christ had changed her life, but I, I, I remember it so well because it actually changed my way of understanding and even communicating the new birth. And she said, she actually said she went through, she can remember going through at least four different stages in her life that when she was a young girl, she said, I know I'm somebody, I know God loves me because I'm moral. She grew up in a church and she grew up, she says, I'm a good person, I'm moral. Now I can, re- I can relate to this. The idea of behavior as earning affection. If I do the right things, that's how I know I'm going to be accepted. That's how I'll earn affection, love, all that stuff. And that's where she starts as well. It happens to a lot of us who grow up in the church world. But then she said, I kind of remember, at some point, you know this song from the 1940s, you're nobody till somebody loves you. She says, somehow that got into my heart and soul. And then I went through a period of time in which I kept thinking, well, you know, if somebody loves me, if I have this, if I find the right guy, then everything's going to be okay in my life. She says, that was a mess because not only was I up and down, depending on whether I was noticed, but she says, I stayed in relationships that I should have broken off, but I was afraid to. And then some friends came to me and said, oh, you're not somebody. Do you see the replacement that happens? So I'm, I'm somebody because I'm good. And then she decides, well, no, maybe I'll be somebody because I'm wanted or loved or desired by somebody else. These first two have now failed her. Here's more from Tim Keller. Because somebody loves you, you shouldn't take your identity from men. You're somebody because you are a successful person in your own right. You got a career, you're making good money, you're doing this, you're accomplishing things in the world. So she says, I shifted my identity again, my foundation again. And she says, now I found that whenever I had a career bump, it just destroyed me the way the way the romantic bumps used to destroy me. Then somebody came along to her and said, oh, you don't need all that to know that you're somebody. You need to know that you are a good, kind, decent person. She says, I threw myself into helping. I threw myself into volunteer work. I threw myself into listening to anybody who had a problem. I threw myself into trying to help emotionally needy people get better. She says, till I was exhausted. And I hated myself because I was supposed to love these people and I didn't even like them. 
And so she went in her identity shifts from, I'm somebody because I'm moral, I'm somebody because I'm beautiful, I'm somebody because I'm successful, I'm somebody because I'm helpful. Until she realized, finally, that in every case she was trying to save herself and she was exhausted. And she realized, she says, what I really need is to know that God loves me because he loves me. Because Isn't that a, similar to a lot of our stories? I suspect a lot of you can tell a similar story. We find something that we think is going to satisfy or give us some kind of identity. And it does for a little while until it doesn't anymore. And we try to find the next thing. This is an, another milieu of the culture for us to respond to, to be able to, to be ready to respond to it when it comes up in our spouse's life, in our kids' lives, in our friends' lives, in ministry. Everybody's looking for identity. All of them fail until we find who we are in Christ, who we are to Him, and that's the only one that never fails. So I had to share that with you from Tim Keller. Just thought it was too good not to. When we come back, I don't want to talk about Rush Limbaugh's passing, but I do want to talk about the reaction to it. I think there's some things to learn there. Uh, Plus, I have some climate change thoughts around the story out of Texas where everything froze over for a week. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on WHRT and wherever you find podcasts. segment of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I mean this, I know, I know I say it all the time, but I really am grateful that you listen. It gives me a reason to keep doing the show. I have to tell you, if you all just disappeared and stopped listening, I'd stop doing the show and I'd fill my time with something else, but you're all still there. So uh, let's just keep this thing going for a little while longer, shall we? I found that at the immediate aftermath of the announcement that Rush Limbaugh had died, that Rush Limbaugh is quite the trigger for a lot of people. There's a lot of emotions tied up in him, and particularly on in liberalism and leftism, and just some other folks who who only really know him through the collected quotes. They don't they don't really know him as the character that he was playing often on the air. And in any event, I, I found that he's quite the trigger, and therefore, to me, not worth bringing up. So when it comes to effectiveness, like if, I, if, I know, if I believe that my ideas are the ones best for humanity and there is a stumbling block for some people that they just can't get over Rush Limbaugh, that they, they, they despise him, they hate his guts, they think he's terrible, then bringing him up is an unnecessary error. I think there's a baseball, uh, or some kind of baseball illustration here. Like, oh yeah, un, it's an unforced error, I think is the name of the stat. Like, it's an unforced error. You don't have, you didn't have to do it, so why do it? And so I'm not going to. I'm just not going to bring him up, except for I wanted to talk about the reaction to his death. Uh, uh, let me admit something about my heart. When I go on Twitter and find rest in uh, an, an, ex, an excretion of humanity that sounds like rest in peace, but not quite, when I find rest in that trending, and rot in hell trending, and then I find out that it's about Rush Limbaugh, that there are people, not just the rank and file nobodies on Twitter, but some blue check marks, the people who are certified on Twitter, like they have verified accounts, they're big deals, glorying in, celebrating a man's death from lung cancer. 
I will admit, it's hard for me not to see left versus right as, as not an existential fight between good and evil. It is an utterly evil thing to be celebrating this man's death. Full stop on that. I don't have any uh, addendum or amendment or an asterisk. If you are celebrating the death of this guy that you don't agree with, and that you, most people, incorrectly understand his the characters and the jokes he played, or some things he said that were terrible he later apologized for or recanted, if you hate his gut so much that you are so glad he's dead, you're a bad person. You're a terrible human being. You need repentance and faith. You need to follow Christ. That's what's wrong there. And so it ends up being hard for me not to see right versus left as a totally good versus evil, because I know what evil looks like. Evil looks like celebrating the death of somebody you disagree with. To the extent it makes me wonder if, if I get any kind of notoriety ever, if they're not going to celebrate when I'm dead. It makes me think this. There's a lot of folks on the left, not necessarily liberalism, but a lot of folks on the left, they want, they want you dead. If you think what I think, they want you to die. And if you'll die, they'll celebrate because you think the wrong things. You think the offensive stuff that makes their belly hurt. And if and because of that, you should die. And when you do, they hope you rot in hell, something they don't even believe in. And so when I see it, it's hard for me not to see this as existentially good versus evil. Now, to take some Bible to that, what we do know is our battle, our fight. We are not wrestling with flesh and blood. You are not wrestling with, fighting with leftism, liberalism, and secularism in the United States of America. We wrestle not against those things. We wrestle against principalities and powers of the air. Our enemy is in the unseen realm. It is the demonic, the satanic, the the dark that influences the mind that would celebrate at the death of someone else by cancer. That's the enemy. It's not the flesh and blood. It is that which is influencing the flesh and blood. Going through this Revelation series at Beachwood Church, as our Pastor Doug has, by the way, you can get those sermons on Anchor, and you should, helps me to see that more and more. All around the world, there's a force of darkness behind all of these things. And that force of darkness has been given power for a time, and it will be, it will be taken but that's our enemy. I will admit, though, my, my own heart, my own flesh, it was hard not to see left versus right as good, good versus evil. Second thing on this, we must endeavor to never be those people and to sanction those on our side who would ever behave that way. I, I'll give you an example. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Vast majority of the people on the right didn't celebrate it. There wasn't a celebration of her death. There, by the way, there were some. Definitely there were some. It was not enough that the Twitter algorithm decided to have rest in excretion and rest in, or excuse me, or uh, rest, the other one was rotten hell. Those things weren't trending. So were there some on the right that behaved that way? Sure, it's a small number and they should be called out. On the left, it was more the normal thing. Super de duper glad Rush Limbaugh's dead. So this is terrible behavior. It's evil behavior. Sometimes it happens on the right, but it's very small. And where it does, it is incumbent on people like me and you 
to call it out. Don't even just be a, a passive uh, consumer of that. Call it out when it happens. I know I'm going to do that. But it gave me a little deeper thought, and it was this. I, uh, this is hard. Rush did mean some stuff to me as a broadcaster, primarily a little bit as an ideologue. I stopped listening to him a long time ago. I haven't been a regular Rush Limbaugh listener since I was probably 24 or 25. It's, it's been 10 years. It's been a decade since I listened to him. In part, it's because he was so reluctant to become a podcaster, so I couldn't get him on demand like I could get others on demand. And so I had a job. I was not available from noon to three. I couldn't listen. And then when I did try to go back at some point, I was not appealed to by it. Or I wasn't, Rush didn't appeal to me anymore. But I did watch on YouTube this, uh, this is like right before the new year, he did a show in December where he talked about his lung cancer. And he talked about his impending death. It very much seemed to me like he, he knew he didn't have much longer. And he talked about it with such strength, courage, dignity. Those are the three words that came to mind. So strong. So brave, looking death in the face. And with so much dignity. For all of his many faults. For whatever, the state of his soul, and I don't know what it is. I know that in the waning weeks of his life, he stared death in the face and, and stared death in the face and was not afraid. And then I think of the sad ghouls on the internet, who would stomp on his grave and celebrate. It's coming for all of us, death is. And I wonder about the person who could celebrate a man's death, that when death comes for you, you're going to have that strength. You're going to be so courageous. Is that how you're going to take it? It's also a good word for all of us. Death is coming for all of us. The last year has made that so clear. I remember saying this last year when Kobe Bryant died, that it seemed to affect our culture in a really dramatic way. And I think one of the reasons was he was this young, vibrant, strong guy, and death got him in a very unexpected way. And it makes us reflect on our own mortality, something we should all do more often. Reflect on the reality that we will not be here forever to prepare our souls, to prepare our lives, to put our affairs in order, to do inventories of our own life and see what deserves priority and what doesn't. I think that's all. I'll leave it there for Rush as he's passed and we'll move on. Okay. I have, I think, two or three other quick thoughts. One is this. I said at the top of the show, there is something quaint that the last two weeks, the big stories have been a storm in Texas, a a big ice storm, a very stupid and immature controversy around Ted Cruz, and a little bit the media is finally starting to pick up the Andrew Cuomo story in New York, and really his now showing to be pretty pretty fairly bad management of the COVID-19 crisis up there. So there's something about having a news cycle that's less volatile now that I'll admit I enjoy. I enjoy less volatility. This, 
the media is still being terrible, but at some level they're at least having to do their work. During the previous administration, they really just all sat around and waited for a tweet to come out. And when the tweet came out, they got led around by the nose and did whatever the tweet said and just did their performative sadness and performative anger over whatever the tweet said. Very, very lazy way to do journalism, and now they're actually having to do some journalism, and they're not doing a great job. But in, in any event, it's, it's kind of quaint, cute to have a news cycle like that again. Here's one thing from that Texas story that I wanted to get to. There was some online discussion around global warming because folks on the on the right tried to dunk it, tried to spike the football and say, see, we don't have global warming, we got ice in Texas. And then there were people in on the left trying to respond, well, that could be one of the consequences of climate change is that there shouldn't be this much ice in Texas and they changed the language to climate change. I have just one quick thought on this. In terms of branding... Climate change was the better way to go because global warming hasn't panned out in terms of the facts uh, that the globe did warm a little, uh, then it's been on a little bit of a plateau. And then it gets confusing for people because one of the consequences of globe of global warming actually could be temperatures getting colder in certain parts of uh, the world. That idea is called displacement. So displacing at the poles where it is getting warmer, that air has to get displaced. And so it, it goes somewhere makes it colder other places. That's, that's one of the outcomes that could have happened. My issue with climate change is this. It enters into the world as an unfalsifiable claim in logic, in rhetoric, and for that matter, in science, we all try to avoid unfalsifiable claims. When you make a claim that no one can prove false, it's literally impossible to prove false, not because it's true, because it can't be tested. This is part of the scientific method. We come up with a hypothesis and then say, uh, I, I think this will happen in the coming days, years, weeks. And then we can test it. Well, did that happen? The issue with climate change is it has no claim to falsify. What is the claim of climate change? There will be hurricanes. Okay. There will be floods. Okay. There'll be droughts. Okay. There'll be ice storms. Okay. So is there anything that can happen that will disprove it? What? I, I need an answer to that, by the way. If any of you are more environmentally minded and you have an answer to that, I'd love to hear it. What is the weather weather pattern that says, oh, we were wrong. Climate change isn't happening. There's no global warming. Because look at this weather pattern. What's hard is every single weather pattern proves it. If there's a drought, there's there's climate change. Also, if there is a lot of flooding in the same place over two years. Like if one year, there's a drought in Iowa. And two years later... The rivers are flooding. It's both climate change. Well, wait, what? Well, then what would have what would the weather pattern would have looked like if if you were wrong? So they set up this unfalsifiable claim. It's really intellectually immature and wrong. I need to know how to falsify it. Final thing today is this. What a dumb controversy around Ted Cruz. He flies down to Cancun when his state is a, is a block of ice, and people want to get mad at him. One. I'd have done it too. I got the means to fly to Cancun when I'm out of power and I can't do anything about it. Like, I don't have expertise. I can't help anybody. I can't repair a power line or shovel snow or operate a plow. I can be of no assistance. It's not my job to be of any assistance. I'm not even a state official. I'm a federal official. Yeah, I'm out of here. The mistake he made was saying sorry. If I'm Ted Cruz and I'm getting off of a plane and someone asks me about this, that's what... I would have said what I just said. 
Yeah, there's nothing I can do. You guys want me to like just do a fake performance thing? Just be totally disingenuous and, I don't know, go somewhere and cry about it? What do you want me to do? I, I can't fix storms. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing on a power line. What do you want me to do? So that was one part. The other was there was this idea that he was being hypocritical in some way. The hypocrisy of leaving. This is not hypocrisy. People were trying to compa- like uh, do some kind of thing where like when conservatives were mad at Nancy Pelosi for getting her hair done in San Francisco when she has advocated for shutdowns and no one should be able to go into a salon. Ted Cruz did not say that people shouldn't be able to leave Texas. He wasn't antsy anyone going to Cancun. It might be bad optics. You might say, that was a bad look. Ted Cruz probably should have thought about that more because people get upset when people of means and power get to do things that regular people don't get to do. But it's not hypocritical. I'm I'm sure Ted Cruz's thought is, man, wouldn't it be cool if everybody could afford to go to Cancun when it gets cold? The true hypocrisy has been out, out there on the left during COVID, that they continue to make rules and then break them. That the Democratic governor of California makes rules and then he goes to that place called the French Grocery, broke his rule. Nancy Pelosi makes a rule, breaks the rule. That Congress, excuse me, that council person in I think Austin, Texas, makes a rule against outdoor dining and then goes immediately from the council meeting to do some outdoor dining the day before it shuts down. Like, yes, that's hypocrisy. Leaving a cold place and trying to go to a warm place, that's just wisdom. And it's one of those fake, stupid, idiotic controversies. If the media want to investigate a politician, my suggestion right now is Andrew Cuomo. That's the way to go. I am grateful to listeners of the Corey Act Show and of his radio talk, WHRT, that you give the show time every week. I'm hoping I hear it on the podcast to be doing more content as time goes by and, and not doing just the once a week thing. So uh, prayerfully trying to get that done for you. If you want to support the show, you can find it at anchor.fm. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.